It's me, David Webb, and here's a highlight from today's show on Sirius XM Patriot. The production of vaccines is part of this entire pandemic response worldwide. Who produces, where it's produced, is part of the picture. India's been in the news lately with a significant spike, uh, as reported, uh, the 16 million confirmed cases, of course, a very large nation uh, relative to the population, still 16 million cases, and their highest one-day tally of reported COVID-19 cases anywhere in the world. Now, there are issues in India in their governmental system in the ability to report accurately and it's not just related to COVID. There are various issues in general with their healthcare system, but the numbers add up. The potential for overwhelm in the system matters, as well as the fact that India is a large, if not the largest producer of vaccines in the world. And even within that, the types of vaccines are all factors. So let's dive into this subject because it's getting more and more attention here in the United States as we talk and we hear about vaccines. Uh, Shruti Rajagopalan, Senior Research Fellow of Indian Political Economy and Emergent Ventures India at the Mercatus Center joins me now. Shruti, good morning. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. I'd like to break this down. I've been doing some research. Uh, India, as a producer of vaccines, we'll get to in a moment. But let's talk about the COVID spikes, the COVID numbers as reported in India. And again, I like to have proper relationships in these reports in certain percentage of the population, what it reflects. Still tragic at those numbers at 16 million. Yes, and I think the more alarming number is the number of new cases every day. So as of today, uh, which was yesterday in India, uh, 386,000 is the daily case number, which is an incredibly high number. I think this is an underestimate because in the hotspots in India, the testing capacity is completely overwhelmed. Uh, so everybody who wants to get a test is not able to get a test immediately. So I think these numbers are an underestimate. And the daily, uh, you know, death uh, tally yesterday was over 2,500, which is uh, also an underestimate, quite significantly so, because again, in some of the hotspots uh, in India, in different cities, the number of cremations that are being conducted per day are sometimes 40, 50, 80 times the official COVID death count that the government releases. Uh, so we don't know exactly what the numbers are, but we know that 3,500 deaths yesterday is certainly an underestimate. Uh, the situation is quite dire, as you can imagine. Look, it's dire, and I think it's the obvious statement, but it does matter that every life matters. What about recovery rates? Is there accurate reporting on recovery rates from COVID-19? Uh, once again, you know, even the recovery rates are an underestimate because if everyone who is getting COVID is not able to get a test and they did recover by themselves at home without getting tested, uh, you know, the recovery rates are very, very high. I don't want to be alarmist. Most people who get the virus actually recover from it. Uh, but the numbers, again, are an underestimate because not everybody is getting tested. So that's a positive that underestimate number is actually a good thing. 
effective. All right. So let's go to the next step. Uh, I mentioned vaccines. Uh, India, the largest producer of vaccines in the world. Now, I started digging, and it's a, you have to do a little bit of digging to find even indications of the types of vaccines being produced. For instance, when it comes to COVID-19, India is a huge producer of AstraZeneca. That, of course, is not in use in the United States, but in other nations. Uh, India's relationship and as a producer of vaccines, uh, what is what is the situation with this production? Yes. And what does it mean to not just the United States, but to the world? So you got it absolutely right, David. India is not just the largest producer of vaccines for COVID, but also non-COVID. And the second thing about India is it produces vaccines at scale and at very, very low prices, which means most of the developing countries actually rely on India for their vaccine supply. So, you know, all of Africa, large parts of Latin America, most of South Asia and East Asia rely on India as their vaccine manufacturer. Half the world's children have been vaccinated uh, from a single Indian firm, which is Serum Institute's vaccines, right? Uh, so the, so it's, it's got huge capacities. Now, the issue with the current crisis in India is before the second wave broke out, Prime Minister Modi actually shipped out 65 million or maybe a little bit over that vaccines to the rest of the world to about 95 countries. These were gifts and grants and donations that were given by the Indian government to other nations as part of its vaccine diplomacy. Now, as things get very bad back home, uh, the tendency of the administration is going to be to keep the vaccines more for Indian use than to ship abroad. So if India's crisis gets worse, then the rest of the world's vaccination schedule gets delayed. And as we know already, the greatest risk today, uh, you know, when it comes to second and third waves, is the unvaccinated people in the world, uh, you know, being exposed to this and being, uh, you know, part of creating new mutations and variants. So the unvaccinated pose a great threat not only to themselves, but also to the rest of the world and how long this pandemic prolongs. And the key to unlocking that problem or to making sure that problem doesn't arise is India's vaccine capacity. As India experiences a second wave, of course, everything slows down, including vaccine production. The demand for vaccines within the country surges and uh, it has created a new kind of crisis. So I think on the vaccine issue, the whole world needs to come together, make sure that Indian vaccine manufacturers get the supplies that they need. Uh, because, you know, the demand for these vaccine inputs like filters and tubes and lipids and the coating, all this has just gone through the roof. So the world needs to come together to make sure that India as a vaccine supplier remains very robust. Let's zero in on this, if possible, uh, a little bit more. We're speaking right now to a U.S., a Canadian and in part a Mexican audience on this platform uh, and, of course, there are differences in U.S., Canada, and Mexico. But uh, to that audience, what does this mean? Is it possible to even discern what this issue in India and this problem means for the supply? As I mentioned, for example, AstraZeneca is not a factor in the U.S. vaccine market. It's re you know, relegated to Pfizer, BioNTech, uh, Moderna, and uh, the Johnson & Johnson, Johnson, and Johnson. Uh, vaccines. So. 
you know, for the person listening who says, okay, what does this matter to me here in America? Not that it doesn't matter. What does this matter here to America and to Canada for that matter? Is there a difference or similarity? Uh, so I think for Americans, it's very straightforward. Uh, since I wrote my Bloomberg column last week where I had recommended that America should really export its AstraZeneca stockpile to India because it is not being used. As you know, AstraZeneca is not approved in the United States. Not a single American would suffer from exporting the stockpile, but Indians would benefit greatly, and therefore the rest of the world can get their vaccine sooner if India gets vaccinated sooner. Thankfully, you know, the Biden administration actually, uh, you know, uh, listened to this point of view, and they have decided that as soon as they do a safety review, they're going to export close to 60 million stockpile of AstraZeneca. Uh, Some of it was already given as gifts to both Mexico and to Canada. So I think this is a very positive move, a very positive move. I think when it comes to Canada, Mexico, and the United States, these are three countries that do produce some of the inputs that are required in vaccine production. As you can imagine, vaccine production is very specifically medically approved process. So you can't just substitute, you know, one kind of tubing for another kind or one kind of biofilter for another kind easily or quickly. And during the pandemic, because global supply chains are under so much stress, and also because global demand for vaccines has gone from 4 billion in a normal year to 14 billion this year, all these inputs are very, very critical. So countries that actually manufacture these inputs have, for various restrictions, tried to keep it for their nation first. That intention, uh, you know, everyone completely understands. But it is also important to make sure that India gets some of those ingredients rather quickly and seamlessly, because without that, we are also putting Americans, Mexicans, Canadians at risk because of the new mutations. The new mutations, if they arise in other parts of the world, will eventually find their way to their countries. And I think this can be prevented by ensuring a functional, seamless global supply chain for vaccine delivery. What about therapeutics? You know, the talk is always about vaccines. And as we talked about recovery rates, uh, COVID, you know, it's a pandemic, but it is not going to wipe out the populations at the level, even by percentage that past pandemics have. And therapeutics are rarely discussed, but there are lots of therapeutics out there that have been used, that have been effective. How does India stand with that? And, you know, why isn't that more of the conversation? Uh, Well, for two reasons. One, I think the general idea that prevention is better than cure seems to be the mantra for everybody, uh, you know, when it comes to any kind of disease. So I think that's one of the reasons so much of the focus is on vaccines. Uh, On therapeutics, uh, there is a lot of debate on which therapeutics actually work, right? So, you know, uh, there there was a lot of talk of some of the medication that helped with malaria last year, uh, saying that that had great results when it came to COVID. Now there is, you know, discussion of plasma, remdesivir, I believe, is one of the important uh, medications that's being used in the Indian protocol. There are two, three issues with this. One, uh, As the variant or the mutation changes, different things seem to be working. And because India is right in the middle of the outbreak, it's not yet clear what is the precise protocol to be followed with therapeutics. So different doctors, different hospitals, different states are trying out different things and getting different levels of success. 
But the second aspect of therapeutics and why it's a little bit worrying to only rely on therapeutics is that when a, an outbreak comes, you know, comes to any town or it becomes a hotspot, the healthcare capacity needs to be sufficient to handle all the patients and actually give them the medication that is required. Now, what we are seeing in India right now is that the healthcare capacity is insufficient for the kinds of numbers that we're seeing. So if you see, you know, all the footage or the media reporting from New Delhi, which is the national capital, uh, the number of hospital beds, the number of doctors, nurses, oxygen cylinders, ICU units, ventilators are all hopelessly insufficient which means it becomes very difficult to then give therapeutics to these patients because they are not even able to make it to the healthcare system. So I think therapeutics are a great idea for those countries that have already managed to, as they say, flatten the curve, whose healthcare situation or healthcare capacity is not overwhelmed. But in countries like developing countries, especially where the hospital infrastructure is very weak, the moment it gets flooded, you reach a point where it's too late for the therapeutics to really heal everybody. Though the disease is very, very treatable and people should recover, it becomes very difficult to do so effectively. You know, this, there's a component of this that, you know, people don't like to take on, I do. And it is the politics of the pandemic. And just reading the reporting, outside of your articles, I actually looked at a number of your articles. Uh, quite impressed with the level-headed approach that you take to this. But there's a politics game here in how this is being played. And lives on the line aside, all the other expected statements, what would you like to see if if you do or don't agree with me that there's a politics in the pandemic uh, being played here in a fear game versus the reality of some of the issues you're discussing in line out. What would you like to see as the approach over politics? Well, so I completely agree with you, David. I think there are some things that have been politicized unnecessarily in various parts of the world. Uh, you know, for instance, masking uh, was hopelessly politicized and people were literally choosing whether or not to wear masks or what protocol to follow, depending on, you know, which side of the uh, partisan spectrum they lie on. Uh, the same thing happened in India with lockdowns and shutdowns and things like that. So various aspects of this have been politicized. I think one area where I think the politics needs to come down and the global community needs to band together is on vaccine capacity. A lot of epidemiologists believe that this is not the first pandemic, uh, you know, uh, that is that we have seen. And for this particular decade, it is certainly not the last one we will see. So even beyond COVID-19, they believe it makes a lot of sense to really scale up global vaccine and pharmaceutical capacity to actually make those investments. And as you know, different countries have different potential to invest. Uh, the developed nations, uh, you know, got in their, uh, you know, contracts for vaccine delivery very, very early because they had the money and the resources to do so. And, you know, the budgetary approval to do so. The poorer countries got left behind. And, and as always, the poor tend to suffer most in a pandemic. So I think on this 
one aspect, which is in vaccine investment, not just for COVID-19, but for the future. You know, just now, mRNA vaccine for malaria has shown fantastic results. Malaria is, again, one of those diseases that just imposes such a huge humanitarian and economic cost that if you can eliminate it with a vaccine, the gains are tremendous, especially for the African continent. So these are areas where I think global cooperation uh, can do wonders. I think global politics may be a little bit less, uh, you know, um, loud and noisy than some of the local partisan politics within each country and each state. And that is something I would really like to see going forward. Yeah. Well, I, I look, I'd like to see politics come out of it, but I, then again, you know, everyone has to have their fantasies. Uh, it doesn't help when world leaders set a standard like this president did in a climate summit where he was the only masked person in front of a camera yeah. with people thousands of miles away. Uh, when you set that standard as a world leader, uh, it certainly, uh, I guess, brings up the logical question on my part. Uh, Shruti, uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, there's a lot of good information in there, and it just hopefully removes some of the pandemic politics and fear game being played. Yes, thank you so much for having me, David, and thanking, thanks for keeping the conversation uh, you know, so focused on policy. Thank you. Shruti Rajagopalan, a senior research fellow on uh, Indian political economy and emergent ventures India at the Mercatus Center. That's at George Mason University. 866-95-PATRIOT. You can weigh in on my various social media at David Webb Show. I'll be right back. You can join me live on the David Webb Show Monday to Friday, 9 to noon east on Sirius XM Patriot 125.